conversation tonight, I, I really want to say thank you for joining on behalf of the, the, the guys with me. Um, there's so much going on. We know people's minds are uh, all, over, all over the place in terms of preparation, um, quarantine, and, and shut-in, and being isolated, the social distancing. That has, has a lot of impact on everyone. So just taking this time out to, to take an hour out of your time to have this discussion with us. And, and people still wanting to do it and be a part of it. It's not lost on us, and we're we, we humbly uh, thankful for being a part of it. So I'll just jump right in, right? So much talk has been about the promise and possibilities of black men in education and teaching. Um, it's, it's, it's something we've heard a lot about in the last six months, um, but not so much in terms of when we talk about teaching and learning and math. So we're gonna open that conversation up tonight and it's gonna be interactive. And so I wanna start out posing this question to you because as soon as we can get your questions in the chat, we'll begin to put them as a part of our discussion as well. It's not just simply us presenting and um, you listening, but we certainly want to involve and invoke some of your, your ideas as well. So the big question I wanna pose out there is, when you think of teaching and learning in math, right? What vision do you have for black men? When you think about teaching and learning of mathematics, what do you imagine for black men in mathematics? So that's the leading question. And if you just go ahead and, and think about some of your responses, your thing, your, 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 your notes, what you want to get out of this, and you put it in the chat, and we'll come, come to that. Okay? Well, I'll introduce myself more formally. My name is Lou Matthews. I'm the director of Math and Science at Urban Teachers based here in Baltimore, Maryland. And I've been passionate about culturally relevant teaching of mathematics and the power of mathematics movements and mathematics in black and brown communities for probably the last 20 years. And seated with me virtually are some colleagues of mine, um, Dr. Peter, uh, I'll, I'll say it in alphabetical, Dr. Kendall Brown, Dr. Christopher Childs, you can just kind of thumb up and so people can see you on the video, Dr. Peter Ely, and Dr. Christopher Jett and myself, Lou Matthews. And I'm just gonna pause and let them share with you maybe just a few notes about themselves in the next 10, 15 seconds of their time. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. My name's Kendall Brown. I'm uh, the executive director of the California Mathematics Project, professional development in the state of California. I'm a former Midland High School mathematics teacher and similar to like Lou said, I'm really interested in how culture and identity um, impact the way African-American adolescents learn mathematics. And I'm also interested in what kinds of professional development really support uh, the teaching and learning of mathematics for students of African descent. Thanks, Kendall. All right, my name is um, Peter Ely, and I'm um, professor of uh, math education at Fairville State, and I'm department chair of the Health, Physical, Secondary Education Department there. And um, my work and my interest is in equity, um, from particularly in access and on the policy, policy side. So I'm a quantitative researcher and I'm examining um, issues of access and, and policy, and, um, and I like to dabble and dabble a little bit in the technology side of that. So that's where my interests um, lie, um, and that's the particular work that I do here at Fayetteville State, um, HBCU here in North Carolina. All right, Christopher Childs, graduate of the number one HBCU in the country, Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University. 
my focus areas are the tasks that we use in classroom, assessment systems, and teaching math for social justice. I'm a mathematics specialist. I tell people I do all things mathematics education. It's just my passion. How do we provide quality experiences for our students so they can have, uh, so they can really succeed in what we're doing in mathematics education? And my name is Christopher Jett. Um, I am an associate professor of mathematics education at the University of West Georgia in Carrollton, Georgia. Um, I must say, I'm a graduate of the number one HBCU, that's Tennessee State University, um, by the way, uh, in, in mathematics. And so my, my research, a lot, of, a lot of it deals with not only math teachers, but also uh, mathematics students within undergraduate mathematics context. And so a lot of my work looks at this uh, to examine these students' experiences through both critical race and culture relevant frameworks. Wow, couple of number ones, huh? Okay. I, I might say I'm a graduate of the, another number one, uh, Alabama A&M University. Woohoo! Yeah! Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and it's, it's such a pleasure to work with such phenomenal gentlemen. You know, the audience won't get insight into this, but we often have off-the-cuff conversation, and some, of, some people have seen it as they joined early, but we often have off-the-cuff conversation as we meet monthly or virtually, and we talk about, in fact, we struggle with this one thing, right? As a group of black men, should we focus on, do we focus on our work in the, do we, do we focus on what's being done in the classroom around black boys and black students, or do we focus on other aspects of the pipeline, our work as mathematics, black male mathematics educators. And it's just so interesting that we have so many different experiences across that entire pipeline. And so I wanna throw out the first big question to you gentlemen, and that is this, right? You're, you are this, you've developed, here, here you are now as black male mathematics educators from students to math educators. What powerful memories stick out for you? What powerful memories? across and along that pipeline stick up for you? Your most powerful, most vivid, most pressing memories? Uh, well, as a graduate of the other number one HBCU in the country, Elizabeth City State University, uh, I, the two that stick out for me is, uh, I had a lot of influence in the home. Um, just in education, that was a big thing in our home and a teacher um I, actually my algebra 2 teacher for some reason and she was a white female it's like she just didn't give up on me and because of that i wanted to make her happy by doing well and um because i just i just liked her she made me feel good about myself and um and i just remember vividly that was the thing that connected me to math and from that point on i just kind of kept going and realized because i was one of those students even today i would struggle 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 then the final exam come, I would get an A, or I would do well on the final exam. So I know a lot of times, you know, especially, you know, students of color, when they struggle, they get to a point that they give up or they're not encouraged to keep going. And some of them, it just clicks different. And for me, it always clicked at the end. And, I, and it always was, um, it, I show, it showed itself because I would do well on the exams and would do, you know, really well, but I might have not done as well through on the work and the exams as we was going along. So, um, and her realizing that and me finding that out about myself, that kept me in the space long enough to be able to let it click because I learned that about myself early on. And that, but it was a teacher that definitely gave me that influence. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I, you know, I have a similar story. Um, I can remember um, being in the 11th grade, attending this predominantly white high school in Los Angeles. We had a voluntary busing program at the time. Student body was about 25% black. And in an effort to diversify the teaching staff at the school to reflect the student diversity, the school hired a number of African-American teachers. And one of the new hires was this African-American female mathematics teacher who became my Algebra two teacher, right? And she was the first African-American mathematics teacher that I had had in either middle or high school. And I ended up excelling in her class. And I remember there was a, a special day every year where the students reverse roles with the teachers and administrators. And so this teacher, and her name is Mrs. Garner, asked me to present a lesson on interpolation to the class, right? And so I met with her ahead of time, we planned the lesson, and I successfully presented that lesson to the class. And that experience really did a lot to build my confidence in my own ability to do mathematics. And I also felt a particular sense of pride that I was able to successfully explain that concept to the entire class. So that's an experience that really stands out in my memory. Any other, I, I know that we're, I'm talking to the panelists here, but is there anyone in the audience at large that has a similar story um, or similar experience, particularly perhaps a black male educator, black male person in the, in the audience? But not to jump off from the audience members, I want to jump in with, I had three pivotal points. Uh -huh. Three pivotal points. For me, I always loved math. This, was, this has always been my thing. I like numbers, I like problem solving, but three pivotal moments that propelled me into the field that I'm in today. In middle school, Dr. Winnegar, I'll never forget this guy, older white gentleman, thought he knew everything because he had a doctorate at the time. He used to like almost just chastise me every time for what I did. And then I remember he always said, you'll never have that calculator with you all the time. I was, nowadays, I'm like, you're right. I don't have a calculator with me. I got a, a supercomputer as my phone with me everywhere. But that just made me persevere more dealing with him. Mm. Second experience was when I was in computer, I was an undergrad computer engineering major. We had powers class. If you've ever taken powers engineering, it is a challenging course. And we spent hours to do one homework problem mm. as a group. And I remember that white man called us into the office it was me and two of my homeboys and said, we cheated. We spent the entire Sunday afternoon doing this homework. We collaborated, but we definitely didn't cheat. And I was like, all right, that put another chip on my shoulder. Like, I know we did the work we did right. And I ended up getting like the second highest grade in the class, like at the end, because I was turned on. But then the most recent pivotal moment, when I first started my career, started at Bethune-Cookman, my mentor, I, I never said his name out loud purposely, he just turned me on to the power of math and what we could do to create social change. And what was unique, I found out later, as he was mentoring me years prior, like when he first began his career, my uncle had actually mentored him. So those three moments shaped who I am as a mathematics educator. The first two, that middle school teacher and that um, college professor kind of put chips on my shoulder. Like I never let a black kid go through this experience again. But then with my mentor to this day, it's like we could do so much more with mathematics. So I, for, um, I use him as like, when I go into different rooms, I take him and everybody else with me, like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna make this space better. And, and I'll add mine as well. So my, one of my earliest, sorry, one of my uh, most powerful um, memories was as a 16 year old taking a calculus class at 
my college and I took the calculus class because that's what the mathematics majors were taking. But my high school had never had a class beyond algebra two. So I, I was jumping right into calculus and I was just so, I was, did so well in high school, but I was just so underprepared. So Mr. Pope, which is the, he was the, uh, I guess the, the leader of the math department at the time, you know, with his famous speech, 50% of you will not finish this class. 50% of you won't pass this class by the end of the semester. And he, I know his name was Mr. Pope, but he was a prophet because he was exactly right. And I remember struggling in that class and going to him and asking for help. Mr. Pope, I can't get this, man. I can't get it. Come on, what can I do? And he, he said to me, Lou, maybe you're just not cut out for this. And I remember being away from my home country of Bermuda in, in this class in element, um, Massachusetts, going to my dorm and crying because I was such a, no one had ever told me that I couldn't do math until this guy, you know, said I couldn't do it. But I, I ended up sticking it out, sticking, getting a tutor, sticking out through the classroom. But by the time we finished the program, there were only four of us, right? Um, four of us in this predominantly white program. And so it was just, that was a real powerful, pivotal piece of how he almost derailed my entire space and my entire identity about mathematics. All right, so I'll, I'll pause there for a second because I know that we have, a, we have one, I want to get to this question in the chat, but I, want, I just want to hold off for a second and, and ask Chris, Dr. Christopher Jett to chime in because I know Dr. Jett, as you're hearing these stories, you're already thinking about what threads you see running through it. So let me just ask you, what, what, do, you, what do you think you're hearing as, as you know, the four of us have just kind of mentioned these pop-up points? Yes, I. Can you all hear me? Yep. Okay, no, you look like you were frozen there. Yes, no, I, I think one thing, one thing that I'm hearing across uh, the four cases is just really the power of this <coughs> K-12 um, mathematics space and what it means in terms of inspiring and motivating students to move forward in mathematics. Um, I've shared some of my own experiences, like in, in my research. One thing that I don't think that I sort of uh, say enough is that, you know, through my K-12 experiences, I never had a black male mathematics teacher. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what that means. I mean, there, 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 are, many, there are many different things that, 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 that can mean. Um, I always talk about the the idea of getting the A plus, uh, my only A plus in school, uh, in a mathematics classroom. But that was really fostered in my community because I was helping all the other children with mathematics. And so, um, as a result of helping them, then that sort of transferred into my school mathematics experiences. But to your point, um, I think that it really does underscore. Um, how crucial the K-12 space is for encouraging black boys in mathematics. Yeah, so, so let's, build, let's build off of that because each person in their story took, you know, went at great lengths to mention the race, the makeup of the person, you know, fr from the white female teacher to the African-American female teacher. Um, I, I had, you know, and, and, and even my guy was a white um, professor. And so race does play an importance. It's, it's, it's definitely important in our minds. But I, I want to just kind of open this question up. It actually came from the chat. And that is, you know, what do you all see as, 
as the nature of the mathematics classroom. In fact, the, the chat question is this, is this, how can we make mathematics classrooms a safe place for blackness and nonviolent for black men in a country that was built on quite the opposite? And, and that's some strong words, right? But what do you think? Is, it, is, it, is there such violence in the mathematics classroom? And is that in your stories? And do you see it in what's happening out there today? But I think you frame it the right way is we're forcing kids and black and brown kids to enter a system that was really never designed for them in the current version of what we have education. And we're wondering why the, their proficiency isn't the same. And it's because you're forcing them into an environment. They can either adapt and assimilate to an environment or they can fight the environment. And typically when we fight it, we, we lose on that end of the stick. So that's why this whole piece of cultural pedagogy, teaching for social justice is important because you start to authentically build environments based upon the students that we serve, as opposed to this is how we've always done it. We're going to keep doing it this way. We know that crap ain't working for everybody. So it's imperative now, I know it's going to probably be one of your later questions. How do we even get to know these black males? And I know, again, I'm not going to jump into it now, but do we really get to know them authentically or do we get to know them from stereotypical beliefs and as opposed to developing relationships so we can build lessons that that, that based upon their interests? That's, uh, yeah. Now, and this is, again, you know, we've had these conversations before, Chris, about, and it's like, where do you, where do we start this, this whole space, right? Because it's, it's this pipeline from our earliest memories. Our earliest memories are as black men and black students in the classroom. We're in these spaces that we deem uh, anti-black male, anti, you know, just violent towards our very existence. In, and so if we're going to shake that up, where do we start? What, what do we do? What's, this, what's that space? Anyone else want to chime in? Well, from the chat box we have from Christina, she says, as a K through eight school administrator, <laughs> I struggle with our system that breaks down students who struggle instead of empowering them. A lack of relationship-centered teaching and are made to feel that they are worth, worthless. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, so you take a look at like the, the standards for mathematical practice that come out of the Common Core, right? If um, those kinds of standards were implemented with fidelity, right, I think that uh, it would just open up uh, the classroom for different kinds of participation, right? I still see too many classrooms that um, are still extremely traditional in the terms of the ways that students are expected to participate and allowed to participate. And oftentimes, um, these ways that students are allowed to participate are kind of in opposition to who, who black, male, black men, black males are, right? And um, how do we, so it's a challenge and what I've been challenged to do in professional development is to help to get teachers to, really rethink those kinds of classroom practices that tend to marginalize you know, African-American males and mm -hmm. students of color in general. But it, mm -hmm. it, it's a challenge to get to really um, 
get people to reflect on their own belief systems. And we're also dealing with the structures that are in places in, in place in schools that um, kind of rob the agency from teachers who want to engage students differently, but um, feel like they're like, like they can't because of, you know, testing because of pacing plans and things like that. So it, it's, it's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to share, um, Charles Bowman writes, I attend, I attended a predominantly white school district and I am one of five African-Americans in the whole district. I am fighting to change the culture, but my white colleagues seem to think I must show, show to all the race issues and I'm seeking to change it. So, so look, not only are we experiencing these things as, as doers of mathematics from a very young age, but even when we come into the space, we have to show to all of the, the load as, 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 as folks of color who are in the space having to show all the load around race issues and, and, and such. And so that's a tremendous, we're carrying this burden from, <laughs> from, from early on to late in the space. And so that's, that's really interesting thing to note as well. And there's gotta be something to be said about burnout um, and, and the, trauma, the traumatized having to be also the people who, who have to undo the trauma in others. Um, but I want to open up something because if, just in case there are folks on this call who, who hear words like violence and, and anti-blackness, and I, I think, Killer, you just let it off of me, math practices. What, what, what are these math practices that are happening in the classroom that alienate and distance and cause, cause disconnect? What, what are they? Let's, let's name them. Can you call them out? And you can call them out here or you can call them out in the, in the chat. But let's name them and let's bring them to light because then I'm going to obviously ask, well, well, what's the countermeasures to that? But I want to open up. Hey, gradu the gradual release of responsibilities, that starts a lot of this crap. The I do, we do, you do, where you're centering on some teacher and you're essentially trying to make kids be like you. So to me, that, that's one of the, the, the ways to even get it started. Yeah, and then one of these other issues, at least in my particular area here, is just poverty. Um, and because of the um, poverty issue, we have the, don't have the ability to lack quality teachers. And I've been in classrooms where they have people who have social studies degrees in there trying to teach the mathematics. They don't have a clue. The kids don't have a clue. Nobody has a clue. Mm -hmm. And the tests show that, um, you know, that not that the students are not able to do the space, but they don't have access to rigorous mathematics. Um, and that, you know, you have people who somehow gotten certified and scared to teach algebra. Um, I, I don't get it. I mean, it frustrates me to no end. You pass the test. If I'm the principal and I ask you to teach algebra, you tell me I'm not comfortable. How is that? I mean, we hired you and we hired you and you said you certified. So that supposed to have told been the litmus test that you are qualified to teach this. Yet we don't see that. Um, I'm sorry. Yet we don't see that, you know, time and time again. So a lot of time they even the, the poverty becomes an issue because we cannot just get qualified bodies in there, period, um, before we even get to the other part. So I'm looking at from, the, you know, even the balance, but the part of the balance is coming from the poverty. And let's open that up even further, Peter, because even now, let's look at what's happening with COVID-19, right? These, some schools, let's just, I'll just use my own country, Bermuda, for example, the private schools are going to virtual learning. The public schools have to, are, are staying open, right? Um, one of the reasons they don't have access, families don't have the same access to virtual learning as, as do 
students who can go to private schools. Just think, look at math reform. We've spent so much talking about the graphing count. You go to any NCTM, you see Casio, you see Texas Instruments. These are these 100 and something dollar machines for the last 20, 30 years we've been pushing into our schools. And then you think about, well, who has access to this kind of stuff and who can use it well? And you're talking about who has access to high quality teachers. So poverty, access, yeah, that's, that's part of it as well. And I mean, if you look at it now, I mean, this is going to be a very interesting case study in maybe five to six years that this time period where the entire country has been under this, this quarantine to see what holes are going to develop mathematically. You know, we'll see it in our lifetime. I think most of us will be young enough, but we'll be able to remember and be like, you know what, that was it. And they didn't get access to this stuff. We truncated things. We cut stuff off for, you know, so we can keep our system going. We pushed them through. And now we starting, you know, we'll start to see those gaps. And of course, they're just going to get larger because, you know, now everybody has to do stuff online. Half the kids don't have, like you said, access to computers or to the Internet. And some of these companies are doing the best they can. But 60 days of access, um, you know, what is that going to really do when we talk about a lifetime of being disconnected? So um, I think this is going to be a very interesting case study, in particular with mathematics, um, as we go forward um, because of this. Um, this natural phenomenon that we're dealing with as a country. And, and hold that, Peter, because when we get into talking about one of our questions we're gonna, I'm going to ask is, you know, what, what's the way forward, right? And how can we better prepare? We're going to have to think about how can we do that now. So we'll have to hold that as well. So Angela mm -hmm. writes, I think the mathematical practices can go deeper. Um, the deeper our content knowledge as teachers can go, what if we keep asking, what are the other ways to see rigor in this problem? Um, how do we open stuff up? So do, do these practices, I know, Kendall, you brought up practices. I, when, as soon as you mentioned that word math practices, I start shrugging my head because it's, in some ways, they open the classroom up. In other ways, I think, wow, this stuff is so, so culturally neutral and, and, and mm -hmm. it just doesn't do enough for me to energize me as a math, as, as a math doer. And I'm, I'm just curious as to what it might do for the others. Just, just something to think about. Um, Laurie says, when black children show excitement and enthusiasm for learning or being at school, it is viewed as being loud and disrespectful, mm -hmm. right? And right. teachers are slow to intentionally listen to what students are saying, particularly black males, and they prejudge from sight. And so that's, yeah, these are these actual math things we see in the classroom. Luke, Luke, yeah. can I kind of go back to that last question? Um, uh, in terms of what are some of these practices in the classroom that yeah. are. So, you know, um, Rochelle Gutierrez uh, and, and Imani Masters Gaffney co edited a book on rehumanizing mathematics. And yeah. so they talked about a number of mathematical practices that they considered to be dehumanizing, and among them, measuring and categorizing bodies, evaluation that does not honor the complexity context of individuals' own goals being asked to leave one's identity at the door, rule following as opposed to rule breaking or creation, speed value over reflection, and separation of mathematical practice from politics, values, and ethics. Yeah, yeah. And any, anything else to add? Rosa says, uh, Peter, Dr. Ely, that your point mirrors um, what Robert Moses has been using about in terms of regarding equity in technical math learning versus the fight for access to literacy. 
I just put the name of that book, Rehumanizing Mathematics for Black, Latinx, and Indigenous um, students in the chat as well. Any other comments? So, so, so let's, let's push through that space, right? We know that there are a number of practices and I guess it's even wrong to say, well, what are these practices? Because we could fill up a book and a room and talk all night about these practices. But my next question then would be, based on, on the experience here in this room, particularly you gentlemen, what resources do you recommend that, that teachers can have access to that better prepare them to engage black male students? What have you found? What have you seen? And I know we just put a couple in the chat, but what have you found? What have you seen? Well, uh, anything uh, that was uh, edited or authored by Danny Martin, um, I think is critical if you're talking about uh, African-American students, uh, in addition to the work of people like um, Gloria Ladson-Billings, Jacqueline Leonard, Rochelle Gutierrez, Bob Moses, Kwame Anthony Scott, Rico Goodstein. I think, um, you know, these are just some of the scholars that I've read that have really helped to uh, um, get me to think about what I can do to, to make positive change. Mm -hmm. I think in particular, one thing that I see very underutilized is the um, thing that people don't reach out to the professors anymore, right? There used to be a time when you wanted to know something, you would reach out to the people at the university and work with them. And I think due to you know the professional development space changing, everybody kind of went in-house and I call that academic incest. Um, and that everybody, you know, you got all the own answers and you come up with stuff amongst yourself and you don't even reach out to the experts to be able to help support you in that space because a lot of us, you know, we want to engage in that space. We need that space and that's where many of us have come from. But because of the way things have changed when professional development has cut a lot of us out of that and they just kind of start doing their own thing um, just, you know, for um, lack of, you know, financial resources. But if we can re you know, start reaching back out of that space, there are many people there who want to engage and, um, and, and have the ability to engage. But like I said, it's been cut off. So now you just have these people just their own ideas amongst themselves. And that's kind of where it stayed at. So, so one, one solution path is to, particularly for, for black leaders and, and black educators, we, we broaden, broaden our networks on our, our our access to both people in the math community, mathematicians in the professional math community, as well as professional mathematics educators. Um, I want to revisit something that that both Kendall mentioned, but Christina posted in her in her post. She said many elementary school teachers, you know, focused on specialized in ELA rather than math. Um, you know, so they rely on so now. Teachers rely on teachers pay teachers. I know that's extremely popular in our urban teacher sites as well. So they don't have this depth of knowledge of math. Um, and so they can't push the creativity of these brilliant black minds in a classroom. And so for her, the practices are a place to begin. And, and so if, and I don't, and I, I may have understood that point, and I know Kendall didn't, Kendall really emphasized this point. The practices are a place to revolutionize the space for black children by giving us access to to high quality um, mathematics content and, and rigor in their experiences. 
Um, what, what else are your thoughts? What are these other practices, guys, that you think have the potential to revolutionize or, or disrupt what's happening for black males and, and by extension, black students in classrooms? I want to jump back. I think I missed the um, point that I wanted to make earlier. Two, two or three points. First, when it relates to material, uh, Zaretta Hammond has a great book out, Cultural Responsive Teaching in the Brain. I love and that. I think that's a great book that everyone should have. Uh, she'll sister support her, but it's actually, it's a real good book. And because when I look at books, Danny Martin, his books changed my life when I was in grad school. But I think we also need to help people understand the space outside of just the lens of math and education. We're essentially trying to educate people as a whole. Uh, one of the books, my favorite books to read is the Martin Luther King book, Where Do We Go From Here? Community of Chaos. And the reason I like that book, it helps people frame and understand bigger picture than just the education system, but bigger systematic impacts that are impacting on um, culture and society. And I want to just, I want to go back to uh, Dr. Ely's point in regards to people not reaching out to prof professors. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit and push back. Some of our colleagues in the field speak so high and it's cool, it sounds good, but we lose a lot of people. And what I've been pushing back on our colleagues is, I, for get tenure, I've been in that boat. We got, we have to, you have to be at that level to get and respect a lot of things. But we also need to have like a, a not a watered down, a simplified, hey, I'm talking about this critical race with, I don't wanna use critical race here. I'm talking about this big thing with, I use what I do. A lot of my work is uh, high cognitive demand tasks, the tasks that we use in classrooms. Most of the time when I say high cognitive, high cognitive demand tasks, people are like, what the heck are you talking about? But when I break it down, in its essence, rote routine tasks like two plus two versus word problems, people are like, all right, that makes sense. So I think we got to uh, rethink that piece and then also collaborate more with teachers that are in the classroom when we're, that, when we're outside the classroom and develop that bond. Because it's some amazing teachers, but how do we elevate their, their voices also? Um, as someone who has the credentials and everybody, we respect them, but I think we got to find a balanced approach between the two, um, just so we don't, because what we're doing in a sense, mm -hmm. the same thing in the educational realm that we don't want to happen to the boys, like, you don't have this set of criteria, you can't speak to it. But how do we collaborate more in both of those spaces and, and build each other up with it? Uh, and how do we use our, our professorships and bring a teacher along with us because we know the professorship is going and that doctor is going to open the door and they may not open it for the teacher. But if we come through, we can bring a gang, a gang of people uh, uh, with us. I didn't mean to derail where you're going with that, Lou, but no, you know, I don't I want to lose that thought. It's, but this is free conversation. Go ahead. Yeah, it just it just to me, as we look at those systematic pieces, we first got to uh, um, obviously I know we're going to talk about providing resources to teachers, but first going back to my initial point, how do we just educate people who are black people and educate people who are black people? Most of our curriculums, because who they're made by and the authors started slavery. So if we went back before that and educated people, they'll view our black boys differently in the classroom. They won't view them as those stereotypical typical pieces. So for me, my work is, uh, yes, that's how do we look at through the math lens, but just how do we re-educate people to know who we really are? All right, I'm gonna be quiet. I want to take over. No, no, man, no, man, you can't be quiet after you just jumped up. You just said all that stuff. So, so I'm just, you know, I've been taking a few of my notes as well. So, 
you know, we've been challenged right now. Look at, we have to look at systematic pieces that go beyond, and, and I wrote also, you know, beyond mathematics. And a lot, of, I look at a lot of the folks here and a lot of folks I talk with who have mathematics, professional mathematics experiences, sometimes that keeps us in a bubble, right? And not connected to the general space of what happens in schools that have to do with all of these other subject areas. Now, for case in point, um, I'm a member of these groups in Facebook, Black Teachers Rock and um, Black Educators Rock. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, and they have like five, six, seven, eight, 10,000 members, right? 20,000 members. And I'm just amazed at how little, how, how little of our impact as mathematics educators shows up in their spaces. Right, and we have such a potential. If we if, if we think about what you said, Chris, we have such a potential to, if we can nurture, we can nurture those relationships with those folks who are out there. We have a potential to really shake up what happens every day. Um, but maybe we just end up talking to ourselves or talking, to, and maybe math reform helps us to do that. We go to NCTM, we talk to NCTM people. You know, but how do we operate beyond the thing? That's my that's my wondering. Rosa agrees, she totally agrees. She says, making connection with classroom teachers, some who don't see too far beyond their classroom walls and don't see role models either. I, I think this is one of the ways we're making it happen through grassroots efforts. And yeah. hopefully after this call, people will email each other, DM each other and start collaborating on these pieces. Because we, a lot of us are doing great work. Dr. Elin, I'm putting it honest on him because him and I are working on a grant that we behind on to do this kind of work. Uh, yeah, I'm putting it out there <laughs> to do this kind of work. But these are the spaces that we got. It's a lot like the cool thing about what I do. I get to see stuff from the East Coast, the West Coast, North and South. We're doing a lot of good work in pockets. And we need to figure out using technology like we're doing tonight. How do we bring these pockets together in different ways? And that way we can start seeing some change on a grander scale is through those collaborations, meeting spaces like this, and, and us being ready to put in the work. Like, we know this work is hard, but you, we got to be ready to put the work in. A couple sleepless nights. And, you know, I think it's also important that those of us that are in positions of leadership uh, and have an opportunity to influence other people, always make sure that these issues are in the forefront, right? I oversee a statewide organization of people, uh, of professional development providers. And so I make sure that, you know, what comes out of my mouth is definitely an, a, an equity-focused agenda, and that manifests itself in the work that I do and the work that I promote, right? So I think that's important as well. Uh, when we have these opportunities that we push that agenda. Um, you know, um, Libria, I think that's, I hope that's correct. I don't want to mispronounce her name. Uh, she, she says, you know, she's agreeing with you, Dr. Childs. Um, academia is constantly telling me that my 17 years of experience um, has little or no value in the ivory tower. One, one story about me is that when I was at Georgia State, I was at Georgia State, uh, first University of South Carolina and Georgia State, and I made the decision to go back to Bermuda and, um, you know, to leave. And I might have one, maybe two years before I was up for tenure, and I made the decision to leave. And as soon as I announced that decision, my, the dean of the education department stopped talking to me. 
and he said, actually sent the associate dean to talk me out of it. And I was so committed to going back to my country because they were at a real pivotal point in education. And I realized something, you know, my, my training just for me in the ivory tower did not prepare me to work with community. It, it did, just didn't prepare me to, to impact black community. You know, it prepared me to talk to other people in academia, to, to do publication, to do all, but it just didn't prepare me to touch, to reach out and be able to have powerful conversations around mathematics within my community. And I, and I see that just last week when I'm talking, when, my, when folks in my, my communities are talking about this, ex, what should we do about, should we stay in or not? Oh, this stuff they're saying about COVID-19 is hogwash because they don't understand, and I really, they don't just understand what exponential rise means, exponential growth means. They don't understand how something can look so, like it's just growing so small and then just gradually shoot up, right? As you see in these exponential growth curves. And so they were saying, well, I'm not gonna do anything. Look, it's two cases, it's one case. And so I had to, I put out something on my Facebook and just said, hey, look, this is what exponential growth is like. And it was just a simple message to my community, but I had never been taught in all my years as a mathematics teacher and educator, I had never once received training about taking my mathematics to the community and taking the community with me in my mathematics. And so I think that's something that holds us back from really reaching the, the, the host of black males in classrooms and out there as well. But Lou, question for you. Yes. You're saying the ivory tower did not prepare me. And essentially it sounds like that you're saying the ivory tower did not prepare you to make change. But yeah, it wasn't designed to. But, it, but that's that's why I'm getting that. We're talking yeah, about yeah. systematic. Gotcha. Yes, the yes, ivory yes. tower is designed to maintain the system. You were taught to maintain the system. You want to disrupt the system. You're not why would why would you be taught in a these institutions yeah. to disrupt what's been built? Yeah. Why would we be taught and why why don't we teach it? That's why we don't teach it in school now. Yeah, the, the sad thing is that I thought that. The PhD allows you to, the message is that it does allow you to disrupt, but it not in the way that it's good, not in the way that allows you to build grounds up, grounds up relationships with the communities. That's the other aspect that we don't talk about, that math reform often for me doesn't talk about the power and the beauty of our communities. So that's one of the pieces I think, and, I, and, and if you had the opportunity to read, I think Robert's, um, Oh man, now Robert Barry's last piece he wrote where he intentionally um, called out black scholars and brought their work to the fore, um, fore light. You know, I see a couple of them here, you know, Chris Jett and, and Nicole Joseph and, mm -hmm. and you know, their powerful work that they've been doing and others, you know, that I failed to mention, but charged to my head and not my heart, that bringing it and when you have opportunity to bring others along in the space that you also do that. Because um, you know a lot of people kind of get left out of this space, and now you know, and they don't, they don't, they haven't been trained in that sense, or know the ropes or how the game is sort of played. And if you had the opportunity to mentor another colleague, um, to do so and keep your foot in the door for somebody else, so I think that's one of those things that he was doing, and he's done throughout his whole time at NCTM. And I, me, for one, I'm personally appreciative of it because I got to meet a lot of you guys that I hadn't met before. But others, if we all take part of that as part of the community and that we embracing each other, that's not a competition. If Chris is doing great work, I want to use his stuff. If Peter's doing great work, I want to use his stuff. If Nicole's doing great work, Lou, Chris, whoever, that helps me get that much further, right, 
to mm -hmm. push the whole agenda forward for everybody. And this, you know, and this thing of competition, I mean, you know, I don't need, I compete against them enough. I don't need to come home and compete against my family too. So um, that whole piece, and like I said, I'm grateful for that piece and what Robert has been doing, um, and it seems intentionally in that spot. And then others, we pick up the mantle and we start doing it where we can, citing each other's work and, and putting the other good work out there. I mean, we all know the William Takes and the Gloria Lassabellans. We know them. But we need to know the Chris Childs and the Kendall Browns and, 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 and the Crystal Mortons. You see what I'm saying? Because they got good work too, but, you know, we're small, you know, maybe you're at a smaller institution and you ain't going to get the same look. You know, like, I just be honest here. You know, if it said Vanderbilt or it says Fairville State, I know who getting two looks at it. It is what it is. It don't mean it's any less work. It didn't mean I ain't put any more, any less love into it, but yeah. it's part of the system. We talk about disrupting, right? And part of that disruption is that we who have access are mm -hmm. intentional about getting some of these others who don't have that same level of access until they kind of get to the footing and they build their own platform and go from there. Staters, let's stay there. Let's stay there, Peter. Let me tell you why I want to stay there because I remember when I was in school, one of my, the first black PhD I'd ever met, he said, oftentimes when you, as a black person, you get a PhD, you have to unlearn everything you've learned in order to be of use to your people. And one of the things I, I, I champion and I want black mathematics educators to unlearn is the ways in which the structure of mathematics and mathematics reform has programmed us unwittingly, right? to work against our own interests in some way, shape, or form. One thing that we must mention this idea of competition, right? Um, when you look at uh, what, what holds up white supremacist, uh, white supremacist tradition, is this notion that's anti-African, this idea of competition about everything else. Not that you never have it, but competition over collaboration. And I'm gonna call out one, as I'm gonna call out the, the, the journal for um, JRME, for example. Right, not call it out as a, as a journal, but as an institution. When I was coming up, it was it favored certain only certain people could talk. Man, only so, you think this cultural relevant thing is 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 nice and and namby pamby now. But when I was a doc student, you couldn't even talk. I, I can tell you the list of rejections we got from mentioning that word culturally relevant. Right, um, having to define well what's culture, and the pushback, but. While certain people, certain educators, black math educators, got favored status in these institutions like NCTM and and these these elite journals, so and I'm not talking about the NCTM now as we know it, but but at least it's the history of the institution. We have to be able, and that's in fact the same fervor that drove us to start the Journal for Urban Mathematics Education, because we could not get our work published in these spaces, and. So we have to remember that, that we have to break down these barriers. And, and so even when the math practices come out, we can't just say, hey, math practices, let's go, let's use them. No, let's, let's, let's push these things to mention things like identity, race, and culture, and social justice, and all of these things that our forefathers have fought for, our ancestors um, have fought for. So that's my thinking. Where do we push back, and how do we push back in defining this pipeline? You know, Lou, you just brought up so much in what you just said, because, you know, like, for instance, I can think of someone right now who's pushing out this equity framework in mathematics 
that I encountered when I was in graduate school who said that if we were to bring up issues of race in mathematics education, that was advocacy and not scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's real interesting how now that equity has become the buzzword that you have all these people coming forward to kind of walk into that space, but there were people who rejected the concept 10 or 15 years ago, right? Um, so that's something I think we really have to be on guard about and really to make sure that we continue to hold up the people who have been doing this work long before it was popular and who got marginalized because they did the work, right? And, and let's call but, it out. One organization was Benjamin Banneker. Benjamin Banneker was calling nonsense out when nonsense, before nonsense knew what it was, right? And it, and if it, and I can say this without um, fear of contradiction, it suffered. It suffered because of that. It got, um, in sometimes, sometimes it was blackballed, sometimes it was pigeonholed because of some of the language it was using, because of some of the things it was saying, and because of some of the things it was doing. And so many of us owe a great debt to that work of, of the organization. And it's a small, listen, this is a small organization. But it, it just, it's just consistent with the work of Moses. It's consistent with the work of our ancestors. What, what we in this room can do but we have to do it, and I don't know if we can trust the, I don't know if we can trust the big house to, to get it done. I think we have to push those boundaries. But like you're saying, Lou, we got to push to the boundaries and we got to start, how do we connect with each other and support each other? Yeah. Like when people are doing this work, whether not even just conferences, articles, books, how are we consistently supporting and pushing it? And then also, Stop letting others try to define the space because right now it's profitable. Equity is that's the money, but everybody wants to do the money work, so that's why it's hot. But I, I'm I'm like old school in that sense, of like that NWA Ice Cube beef with that no Vaseline, like starting to call out people. <laughs> like we're letting people come into the space knowing what they're just trying to profit, and they get to define the space. Like stopping them, like I almost I'm trying to be not say the wrong word, but stopping them and saying, "Nah, forget that." This is what it is. We define this space. You don't got the lived experience. We're not going to let you um, just try to take over everything. So we got to be, in my opinion, again, different people at different levels. But when you get in positions of power like Robert has done, Staley done, and NCSM, NCTM, we got to, even though they're on the back end, um, Robert, how did we support them when they were in them crazy rooms and going through what they were going through? Because when we get in leadership positions, we got to know our leaders are there, but we got to, Yes, keep them under the fire, but keep pushing and supporting them as they get in these rooms. Because a lot of times when we go into these rooms, it's just one of us. That's right. But but like Oprah said, when she came into the room, she brought the 10,000. So while I may be the only one that's physically in the room, I'm bringing all y'all, but y'all got to help me and support me when we uh, get in these different fights. Someone says, Lou, speak. I'm on the board of JRME. Y'all send your stuff now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what? It, it makes me paranoid because we were just in a time in, in the early 2000s. There was a time when it was just a hostile environment. And I'm almost paranoid to see, when I see Robin as president, <laughs> I have to get over my paranoia. I'm so happy for it, but I have to get over my paranoia. <laughs> um, let's, look at, let's look through the, um, Laurie says, some people fight the disruption. This is a major hurdle. Yeah. Dr. Barry has had to justify and explain his letters for sure. Yeah. 
So where does that leave us? We have about five minutes left of official time. I know that Crystal, you've 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 you know you've given us time to kind of continue our conversation, but we we I respect you know where people are, but where does this this leave leave us? Right. Um, I guess the, the the ending question would be the same as the first question. That is, what do you all imagine for spaces like this where black male mathematics educators um, bring stuff to the mathematics classroom what do you what do you imagine for us what do you imagine for this work and even for yourselves this is not it's not exclusive it's certainly complementary work but what do you imagine for us let's leave off of that so you know one of the things that um i think we've always done in different ways and different communities across the uh, country has tried to create spaces outside of the traditional uh, K-12 classroom for black students to accept, to have enrichment experiences in mathematics. And so, and just one example for the last 12 years, um, you know, I have been working with a group of, you know, African-American educators who had gotten funding from the different uh, university systems in the state of California to run these summer algebra institutes in black churches, about 22 black churches across the state of California. And it was a cultural, culturally based curriculum where we were teaching them about the uh, African mathematical legacy, the contributions of people of African descent to mathematics, at the same time kind of building their skills so that they'd be successful in their first algebra experience. And, you know, and I'm sure all of us can talk about different kind of programs we might have participated in throughout our academic career or that you're aware of in your communities that are put on by different organizations and fraternities and sororities. Mm. And, and so I'm just, you know, I'm seeing, because uh, I, I guess I've become so cynical about the experiences that we're having in the public schools uh, that, uh, you know, I just don't know that that's going to necessarily be a, a solution for us, right? Unless we start creating our own institutions, right? Okay. I'll add, I'll add to that because one thing that I will say, um, um, it seems like there's, there's a need for uh, partnerships. And so I think, I think the partnerships extend beyond just math teachers and, you know, the folks in higher ed, but I also think that it extends into the community. And so if we look at, if we, and somebody just put NSBE and those sort of things, but we look at some of these organizations that are doing this powerful work in the community, how do we bring them to the table in an authentic way um, where we don't, you know, intimidate them by all these degrees and, you know, and those sorts of things. And, and some of them have those too. But my point is, you know, how do we bring people together where everyone is respected equally? Wow, Chris, that's that's a humbling, humbling statement. Bria, I guess someone just referred to. I think what Chris um, is saying is definitely spot on. But I think for somebody to be done, it's gonna have to be somebody that every all all sides respect, right? That could walk in there and basically what we would say would have the juice to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, and identifying, you know, I think in my head, maybe I think a handful of people who in my head could fit that space, but a lot of them are on the tail end of their career too, you know? 
So it's like trying to find that, identify that person or those persons who could walk into that and command that kind of respect just by their presence, not even having to say anything. Um, I think, I think, Susan, someone was talking. I mean, I think they're here, Peter. I think, I think it's not, even, even the people we're looking for might not be in the formal structure, right? And it might not be us bringing people to the table. We may have to go to some other people's tables, right? I mean, you know, that summer algebra program in, in black churches, you know? Um, we may have to go to, to these, go to these tables. And again, that's, that's counter to our training. Our training, that's counter to our training. Natalie says we need more research to practice efforts to support this work. Public ed is where most black and brown students learn. Hey, they're there. That's where they are. They're not going to come to us. They're not coming to us. So, I mean, I'm just reading what's in the, I'm embellishing. Hey, I, I want to challenge this in the group though, Lou. Yes, sir. So we got, most of us have at least two to four weeks. I see a lot of my friends doing stuff on Facebook that are educators. Hey, I'm doing this small group if you want something yeah. for your students. Yeah. What can, I'm just thinking now and these like to put pressure on us in the next 30 days. What could we possibly do innovative to reach like beyond our, our Zoom session? Like if somebody hypothetically, one person started like a Facebook, I'm going to do 30 minutes of I'm going to use Kendall for example of what he's doing in this project. We can do it virtually. And let's say a hundred people share that on Facebook, Facebook live. Then we're, we're, we, we can take education to a different level just from these next 30 days. Cause we, I know, I know we, we want to, you know, change the whole system, but in these 30 days, it's going to be a lot of downtime, but I'm, I'm just trying to think outside the box. With what's something we could throw out there. You know, I've got cabin fever, do you, Chris? <laughs> man, I've been, my kids drive me crazy, man. <laughs> we got to do something. Like, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to just put out there that, you know, so last night I did a um, tutorial. So I'm doing these parent sessions where I'm just, I listen to a parent teach her daughter, this, try to do word problems with her daughter. And all I did was sat there and list, I listened and then I coached the parent. And so, I, I realized it's part of my, one of my passions is to coach, help coach black families in, in delivering and teaching and doing mathematics with their kids, right? And, and I think about, you know, what you say about math circles. I think about Kendall's work. I think that the work is being, there, there are lots of people doing work, but what I think is missing is our pipeline is missing. We don't, there, there's no, there's the visibility beyond these formal, predominantly white structures, I don't see it. So it's not that it's not happened. I don't know about it. I can't see it. What do you guys think? Say more, Christina. Christina. Christina says, share our recorded sessions that we've done on virtual conferences. Virtual conferences. That's a, that's a great idea. Rosa says, great idea, Christina. Plug for Margaret. Margaret says um, she's inviting each of us to submit to the Florida Council of Teachers of Mathematics. That's another way we can we can um, bring a critical mass to a particular place at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
All right. I see some people. Ruth, what do you what do you think about Ruth? Oh, are, are all the other people muted? I think so. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Are you meeting me? Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't sure. You're meeting me or someone else named Ruth? I wasn't sure. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You were saying Ruth? Um, I think thinking about the goals are going to be critical as to how to market it because marketing is easy once you know what is your outcome measure and that way it could be very systemic in how you share it. So like, for example, if your audience is that of teachers, then clearly, you know, platforms for training because right now there is a crisis going on so what they value is different from the traditional what they would get at a conference likewise if your audience is that off you know the community which you're going to package is different because parents now are trying to survive with kids running around the house so really thinking about what is the it and what is the continuum that you expect to sustain because like in florida we're a task um, we just got notification from the governor and our president sent the note to try to contain the school, um, stay away from school till May if possible. So that shifted our understanding from an April, you know, resume to May and kids perhaps not even attending graduation. So once again, this notion as to what is relative, this notion of equity has shifted big time in the sense it's going towards digital equity and digital understanding, but also too. What are the implications as to why would we care? For example, A, without an opportunity to engage in academics, there is an increased opportunity for students to be um, dealing with the criminal justice system. That's a who care factor. So that, you know, so things of this nature along that line could help people say, hey, we need to address this because this is an, an eminent threat or this is an eminent concern. So I really think that once we start thinking about how to tell the narrative and really the who care question, because I guess after working systemically across the university and on multiple panels to support network um, changes, I realized you were right. It, it required skills in the sense that the skills I had as a shop store, as a teacher, I still have that network because they know I was union heavy. But at the same time, the skills I had to use because I was writing our college constitution because we we're consolidating, that was a different type of skill. So as I was ad addressing equity, um, to ensure that as we bring three universities together, how could we ensure that we prov um, promote access for all parties, being sensitive to the needs of persons of black and brown heritage? And so those attributes differ depending on the role in which we're playing. So I think really thinking about systemically what are <laughs> our goals mm. and targeting it in different platforms. And I like the guy's recommendation, like Facebook Live, a lot of people are um, going to social media at more than ever before to figure out how to support this space, what they need to consider, what they can do. So just giving people cheat sheets in this current climate can be helpful. Um, likewise, creating an online webinar, like, I mean, I was glad that I actually had something to do tonight because, <laughs> you know, there is crisis in every day, so this is actually something to motivate and educate. So these are things that she can, I call the low-hanging fruit, to provide access and opportunity. But I just believe that as you engage, really think short-term, long-term and immediate and really help people to see why should I care and how can I help others to care? So that's just my thoughts after listening to the discourse. Yeah. Crystal, and we have the BBA president on here. 
And um, Chris, I want to just thank you before we run out. I want to thank you for, for uh, you know, bringing us all together in this way, shape, and form. Um, Christopher, thank you for challenging us as well. You know, Crystal, we could literally use this particular platform. We could say for the next 30 days or so, we could, we could feature something every night. Whether, I mean, some, it could be something as simple as just some, some talking about yesterday, word problems or fractions, right? It, it could be something as simple to engage community to something like this, right? But we could literally do something, you know, multiple times a week, let's suppose for the next 30 days to really get at our, engage our communities and our families to our networks. So that's one, maybe that's one takeaway. I'm just putting it out there. Thanks Ruth for challenging us as well on that. There's an open mic. Questions from the audience, unmute yourself and go at it. I just want to say thank you. Um, this was amazing. And my name is Libria. And I, this is my first like experience technically with um, Benjamin Banneker, except for like a couple of places where we had drinks and food. So I didn't really know what to expect, um, but this has been amazing. And, and my biggest question is still the first one. Like we want more, we want to invite and we want to have more people of color um, <laughs> uh, attend and, and come to these things. But I'm finding that when you land in these spaces, there's a level of skin that I've had to like regrow the, uh, uh, an armor that I have to put back on that I could take off before, but now I have to put it back on being in academia and going to conferences and, you know, people knowing that I'm about justice as much as I am about like exponentials, like you said. So what, what can we do to make the place a safe place to land or at least, you know, carve out some time at each and every conference for there to be a safe place because mm -hmm. right now it's just it's not it's not safe for a lot of us and i'm gonna mute myself <laughs> that's a that's a humbling that's a humbling you know what so christopher peter christopher jet and childs we and and kendall we meet robert we meet once a month right virtually and i can tell you that's my best that's the best meeting i have all month and we meet, it's, you just summed up why we meet. Because it's probably, for me, I've been in this, in this game for a while, and I'm going to keep on fighting. But for me, that's the safest place I know as a Black professional mathematics educator. It's, just, it's the safest forum I know. And so, you're right. And this is, this is another one. This is another extension of being a safe space. And that's why I like Banneker so much. It's the crazy safe spaces. So, yeah. I, I'm all I'm with you with that. We can create these safe spaces, and this is one of them. Thank you, Libria, 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 Libria. Sorry. <laughs> also, I'm Trinidadian. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Chris is uh, does always manage to get the parties together. I'm looking in the. Uh, chat that yeah. Chris always finds yeah. a way to get us together socially at these conferences. So we're gonna miss out in Chicago, huh? <clears throat> Don't worry, miss out in Chicago, St. Louis gonna be ten times bigger. All right, all right. <laughs> That's so important too though. Yes, it absolutely. You know, so I'm also a member of Todos and at the annual meetings they always um give this salsa party. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I was on the board of Totos for a while, and we were trying to talk about, well, how is this Salsa Party really contributing to the mission of Totos? And I was like, look, I've been at NCTM all week, getting all these racial microaggressions. The Totos uh, Salsa Party is where I can go and get together with other people. I mean, it's the one, one of the few places at the whole conference where I can go and kind of, you know, let that stuff go and just socialize with people, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Don't if they cancel that, I'm, I'm I don't even I don't know if I'll come back to another NPTM. That and the Danica breakfast, that's part of right. like you get right. soul food. That's right. <laughs> you know. Any any part words, guys. I realize that it's quarter to eight. I want to thank you for this great conversation. Um, we'll keep continuing the conversation. This is something we've brought to you off of the tips of our heart and our minds. Um, thank you for pushing us in the chat. Um, I know that once um, Dr. Morton records this, it's being recorded. You'll have, we'll have a recording of the chat as well, right? And so that I know that will be available as well. So we'll capture all of this stuff. Thank you. And I'm hoping, Dr. Morton, we can have more conversations like this. Yes, but I hope so as well. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, so I want to thank everyone for... Um, Logging on tonight and thank you for this rich discussion. Uh, if you want to know more about Banneker, I'll put the website in the chat box. And as you all was talking, I was sitting here thinking we have to plan our part two. So I'll reach out to, I know Lou, you and I have been communicating, so I'll definitely follow with you after tonight. But thank you all. And also you can email us at blackmandomath at gmail.com if, if uh, you're interested in, in reaching us as a collective. Blackmendumath at gmail.com. I just put that in the chat as well. Thanks all. Thanks everyone. Thank you, BBA. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. Appreciate you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Take care. Be safe.